Let me pray for us. Thank you, Father, for your word, which is, as you say, a double-edged sword. Now I ask that you, by your spirit, would come and pierce us, living sacrifices as we are. Still us now in this moment as we hear your word. Deliver us from a world of screens and to-do lists for just this precious moment that you would divide us up, joint and marrow, that we might be placed on the altar of your love, holy and acceptable to you, to live lives of sacrificial service in this church for the glory of your Son. Amen. 1949 movie, Samson and Delilah, directed by Cecil B. DeMille, was a massive blockbuster back in the day, I am told. This is what I read. It was widely praised by the critics. Lead performances were incredible. The costumes, amazing. The sets, innovative. Contrast that with the 2009 movie by the same name, Samson and Delilah, by Warwick Thornton. A movie not from Hollywood, but from Australia, filmed in Alice Springs. Not a big blockbuster Hollywood movie, but a movie more loosely based around the biblical narrative of Samson and Delilah, exploring violence, substance abuse, and young love in Indigenous communities. Here are two portrayals of Samson and Delilah, Hollywood blockbuster, or Australian independent movie, one that conveys strength, and I think Perhaps we might characterise the other as portraying weakness. It's interesting contrast because that's really Samson's life. Both portrayals in some way are legitimate. Samson is a, a man of tremendous strength and yet he's a man of tremendous weakness. What does Samson look like to you as you heard it read, as you've seen perhaps some of those movies, as you've might have been in Sunday school. What does what does Samson look like to you? Tremendous strength, but also glaring weakness, perhaps. Glaring weakness motivated by lust, an uncontrollable temper, a loner. He does whatever he wants, when he wants, without regard for his parents, and as we saw two weeks ago, worse still, without regard for God. And yet he's a man of tremendous strength. The lion comes at him and he rips the lion apart. At one time he takes down 30 Philistines with a jawbone and then takes a thousand, a thousand the next time. He tears tight ropes like tissues. What is your picture of Samson? Is it his strength or is it his weakness? The question of Who is Samson is really at the heart of this chapter in chapter 16 of the book of Judges. Here in the book of Judges, we have the most extended treatment of any other character in the book. And today in chapter 16, we see that there's a question driving this whole chapter. and It's there in verse 5. Why don't you open up to Judges chapter 16? Because it's a question directed at both... Samson's strength, but also his weakness. Because the Philistines come and ask someone close to him, where does Samson's strength lie? They 
concede he's a man of tremendous strength, but they know perhaps he has a weakness. Doesn't every strong man have a weakness? Um, throughout all um, ages and cultures, people have these hero stories, these hero myths, and uh, often the hero is born very much like Samson in unusual circumstances. He's a bit a loner, a, a wild man, has tremendous superhuman strength, strength and yet has a weakness. Superman's a classic one, isn't he? Kryptonite being his weakness. Where does his strength lie, they ask there in verse 5. Why would they ask that question? Well, they ask that question because it's not obvious. The answer, to that obvious, the answer to that question wasn't obvious to the Philistines, nor is it to us. We see that Samson is a walking contradiction, a paradox of a man, both of strength and weakness, virtue and vice, the vicissitudes of violence and vanity, all in this one man. It's not our first time we've looked at Samson. Two weeks ago, we saw that Samson was a man well, well acquainted with Philistine Women, And I think uh, in chapter 16, we see that progression uh, here in 16. Back in chapter 14, we, he met this woman. Well, he didn't meet her. He just saw her and wanted her. He demanded her back in chapter 14. And today we're going to see in chapter 16 that he doesn't demand love, but firstly, he pays for it. And thirdly, he's going to fall in love. So up to point B there, a love bought. In chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, here you have the leader of Israel walking down into the heart of the capital city of Israel's enemy, the Philistines. Now this is dangerous to enter the heart of enemy territory. You better have a good reason if you're going to enter this kind of place. And Samson has a reason. It's there in verse 1. One day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. But it's not a good reason. Here he is, out of lust, seeing this woman. And here he is in uh, verses 1 to 3 with his temper tantrum as he's surrounded and he storms off in anger with the city gate as he climbs up a mountain. At the end of chapter 15, we're told that Samson... Uh, was a judge for 20 years. But this is how he's judging. This is how he's leading Israel. He's endangering his life for no good reason. And worse than that, he's endangering the future of his own people because, simply because he desires this woman or that woman or the next woman. This is, this is, Samson's, well, this is Samson's weakness, isn't it? There are four women in the narrative in chapters 13 to 16. One is his mother and the three are women that he meets. Everyone and every person who entertains an affair in their minds, perhaps taking steps to enact it in their life, is doing what Samson is doing. They're endangering their life. They're endangering their family. Samson's playing with fire here. As the narrative progresses, we see that it's not another prostitute 
that Samson meets, but it's this woman called Delilah in verses 4 following. And there's something different about Delilah. We hear Delilah speak at length. It appears to me, though, that it's not simply the attraction of Delilah as it was with the first woman from Timah. Here it is not simply an affair of the eyes, but of the heart. We're introduced to Delilah there in verse 4. Her name means night, which might be originally a reference to her beautiful dark features. But as we learnt two weeks ago, Samson's name means... Can anyone remember what Samson's name means? Wisha, can you remember what Samson's name means? Son, that's right, little son. And here's Delilah, perhaps the darkness that's going to put out Samson's light. Because Samson, in the Philistines' mind, is public enemy number one. This guy is a, a, a walking weapon of mass destruction and a threat to the Philistines. And the Philistines need to do something about this man. And so they figure they'll exploit his weakness there in verse 5. So they sidle up to Delilah, this woman who's got close close to Samson, and they say, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Now clearly, uh, as we see there in verse 5, Delilah is motivated by, well, by money more than anything, perhaps by fame, because if she can bag what would be the equivalent to us, you know, uh, tens of millions of dollars, uh, she also have this status herself of national hero. Which brings us to this interaction between Samson and Delilah, this famous story, this famous love story that's not really a love story. Uh, did you notice as it was being read, it's, it's hard to believe, really, isn't it? Things seem very obvious, uh, they seem laboured in the text. It's repeated. It's almost farcical. Take verse 6, you know, for example. Uh, you know, Samson, just, just hypothetically, if someone, honey, sweetheart, darling, was to tie you up and sell you to the enemy, what would they need to do? Fresh bowstrings, verse 9, he rips through those fresh bowstrings. What would you expect a rational person to do with a woman like Delilah? What would you expect? I mean, I'm not going to ask one of our ladies, if, what would you expect a rational person to do if they'd met a woman like Delilah? Ladies? Run! Get out of there. But here is Samson's superhuman strength but subhuman judgment. You might imagine after being set up by Delilah, after being sold out he's by her, he would be angry with her. He's a man who gets what he wants. But that's not the case, verse 10. She's angry with him. As she's tricked him, He's tricked her, such as the descent of their relationship. She says, verse 10, you've mocked me and you've told me lies. Please tell me how you can be bound. This is what psychologists might call borderline personality disorder. 
I love you so much, Samson. I love you so much, my darling. Tell me how I can get rid of you. And so verse 11. Did I say fresh bowstrings, sweetheart? Oh, not fresh bowstrings. I meant to say new ropes. And so we replay the whole story over again. Did I say new ropes, darling? Sorry, I didn't mean new ropes. I meant you need to weave seven locks of my hair, sweetheart. It's, it's strange, isn't it? It's obvious. And that's the point. Samson is in many ways portrayed here as such an idiot. Why would you just keep playing into this woman's questions when all she wants is money and him captured, if not dead? But this is Samson. This is his weakness. He's blinded. And he's blinded by love. I think here the scriptures is giving us a graphic portrayal, not simply of Samson's mistake, but something more significant for all of us. I think what is being portrayed here is how sin works in our lives. What does sin do in our lives? Sin blinds us and it causes us to live in denial. We'll be in sin and will continue a cycle of sin, a repetitious cycle over and over and over again, a little like this exchange between Samson and Delilah. Sin makes us blind. It makes us blind to the consequences. It makes us blind to its reality. And it makes a mockery out of us. And it does this all the time. Sin is no good. For any of us. It's no good for us. It's no good for those around us. And yet we do it anyway. We live in it often for states of a time. Because sin is, in many ways, temporary insanity. When I was a child, very close family friends of ours, the father was a successful, wealthy businessman, he was a warden in our church and a respected man. He had five children under 12. He engaged in an affair with his secretary who was at that uh, stage, I think around 22 or 23. And my father went to this man. Uh, my mum was very close to the wife. We were all close uh, the children were all very close, and my father pleaded with him not to leave his wife for his secretary. He didn't hear my father's pleads, and I remember we went over to their house because he was coming to collect some of his things. In particular, he wanted to collect his dot matrix printer. And there he went into the house, got his printer, and he walked out of the house, and there were his five children, all in tears, pleading with him not to leave, not to leave their mother or to leave them. This is what sin does. It makes us blind. Sin is temporary insanity. And this is why in so many reasons, for so many reasons 
We can't trust ourselves and we need to be part of a Christian community. We need a church. Because anyone can hear a great talk, think they're trusting in Jesus and yet be self-deluded and keep living in ignorance, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, we sing it, but do we believe it? This is one of the very important things about being in a community of people here at Point Church. It's harder to be self-deluded with people who are around you, who love you, and who are close to you. And so it's important for us to invite others into our lives, to our weaknesses, perhaps even in the future to our delusions and our temporary insanity. Have you ever given anyone in our church permission to step into your life should you go temporarily insane? Because Samson is a loner. He doesn't need the fellowship of his people. In fact, all the other judges bring the tribes in. They bring others in. But Samson is the strongest of all the judges. He doesn't need pathetic, ordinary people around him. Why would he? He's a man of strength. He's the only guy who can get things done. Who could match his strength? Who could match his wisdom? Some of us harbour these kinds of thoughts. So spiritually strong, knowledgeable. We don't need the blessing of ordinary people in Christian fellowship. So we delude ourselves. The narrative moves on. She asks him a first time, a second time, a third time, until there in verse 17, he breaks. He tells her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head because I've been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. Now, here, Samson refers to the vow that was placed upon him uh, back in chapter 13, these Nazarite vows, um, back in Numbers chapter 6, if you want to look it up. And it's a vow that's made for a time for a specific purpose of service to God. And those who would take this vow would abstain from three things, carcasses, wine, and the cutting of hair. Not that any of those three things are wrong. But we've seen in the narrative so far that Samson has despised at least the first two. He's gone to a uh, drunken uh, wedding ceremony. He scooped out of a dead lion's carcass, honey. And now it's only the, uh, the hair that is the last of uh, that which is abstained in. The cutting of the hair is the last. And there in verse 18, as we pick the story up, as he falls asleep on Delilah's lap, she calls out to check, I think, who... Um, if I think she's speaking there in verse 18 to Samson to check if he's asleep and then she or someone shaves his head and simply and tragically we read in verse 19 his strength left him and the consequences of Samson's sin are in verse 21 as his eyes are gouged out as he's bound 
as he's put in shackles and as he's sent to prison. Where? Down in Gaza. We've heard of that place before. Here's a question. Why spill the beans to Delilah? Why tell her, given what had happened, given the cycles, given the opportunity he's had to know where she's coming from and what she wants out of him? It's all very well understanding Samson's love for her, but why tell her? Well, I think Samson is in love with this woman, or perhaps more precisely, he's infatuated with this woman. There in uh, chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, she says to him as she's trying to lure him, as she's trying to draw him out, as in fact she's nagging him, uh, the NIV translates it, she says, I love you, I love you. Why won't you confide in me? Verse 16, with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. Or literally, his soul was vexed. This is not such a veiled threat on Delilah's behalf. Here is her level of manipulation. Tell me, I think he's implied here, tell me or I'm going to go. And he couldn't bear that. He couldn't bear the thought of losing this woman. We read in verse 17 that after this threat, he tells her, literally ESL, ESV translates it a little more literally, he bears her his heart. He tells her his heart. Twice we're told that in verse 17. See, he had given Delilah his heart. And so keeping Delilah was more important than keeping his vow. Samson was not a, you know, a himbo, that is, a, a strong, good-looking guy who's a bit of a dope. I don't think he was. Although it can sound like that, but I don't think he was because his soul was vexed. His soul was vexed because he knew what would happen to him. He wasn't oblivious of the consequences but he would rather die than lose this woman. And again, this is a portrayal of the human heart, is it not? People will forfeit their soul to gain the world. Christian people will forfeit their soul to gain the world. And so we need to be warned from Samson's example here. What vexes your soul what do you say, if I, if I didn't have that, I don't know, I could keep on living? What is that place inside your heart that you so hold on to that you couldn't live without? Whatever that is, that is what the Bible calls an idol, to look at anything to be and do for you what only God can be and do for you. And here is not just Samson's sin, here is Israel's sin. Israel's sin is personified in Samson. After all, as God rescued Israel out of Egypt, as he was about to bring them into promised land, he was preparing them, he was readying for them for this moment for which the book of Judges contains. Before that, Moses gets the people and God says to his people, 
through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be where? Are to be upon your heart. Here is where Samson's heart ought to be. His heart is to be given to God. Israel's heart is to be given to God. God was to have their hearts. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 11, verse 16, Moses again warns the people of this exact situation. He says in verse 16 of chapter 11, Take care lest your heart be deceived. Literally, that word there is, your heart be seduced. And you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Delilah has become the god of Samson's life. This is not a problem of disclosure. This is a problem of his heart. Samson is exactly like Israel. And here's the hard truth. We're exactly like Samson. Sin has that effect in us. And we all give in. Sin wears us down. Eventually, it gets us. Eventually, it weighs us down and we crush under its weight. We are tempted. We are seduced by evil idols and ourselves. And here's the the consequence for Samson. Samson has abandoned God. And so what does God do to Samson? He abandons him. Because as Samson's hair is cut, as he hears the Philistines scrambling around him, he gets up thinking he's the man he once was, but he's not there in verse 20. He says, I'll go out before and shake myself free. No, you won't, Samson. And here's the sad truth, verse 20. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He's done it so many times before. Why wouldn't God be there for him? He's always been there for me. It's my right. I've done it before. Perhaps is what Samson was thinking. And here, I think Samson is presuming upon the gift of God. Grace cannot be demanded. It can only be received. What is the source of Samson's weakness? The source of Samson's weakness is his strength. The source of Samson's weakness are his gifts. The very things that he prided himself on. The very things that people applauded about him. This is Samson's weakness, his belief in himself. And so we have a warning here as well. Do you have gifts that God has given? Do you have gifts that you know, people notice? Do you have gifts that are recognised? We have gifts, they're a good thing, and they're a good thing from God. And they should be used for his glory. Do you have gifts of ability, gifts of insight, gifts of finance? These are to be used for God's glory because one day 
you might wake up and they're all gone. Samson, in the final moments of his life, is humiliated, he's tortured, he's treated like an animal. The one who tore animals apart has now become the animal. Why didn't the Philistines just kill him? They didn't want to just kill him, they wanted to shame him. He was the leader of God's people. They wanted to parade the victory. He was the victory of the Philistines against against Israel. The leader needed to be made an example of. It was a political triumph. It was a military triumph, but more than that, it was a spiritual triumph. And so verse 23, there's a victory parade of the Philistines' gods as Samson is there being called by the crowd to dance, to provide the entertainment, to be mocked. And as he's being shamed, as he's being tortured, his hair begins to grow back. And so we ask, what is the source of his strength? The source of Samson's strength, Samson's strength is not his hair. The source of Samson's strength is clearly not his faithfulness to God. The source of Samson's strength is the God who is gracious to him. The God who is faithful to his vow. That's the source of Samson's strength. See, at that moment, in verse 20, he didn't even know the source of his strength. He didn't know God, and so therefore he didn't know that his strength had gone. But in the last moments of Samson's life, in his humiliation and moments before his death, he prays. He prays for the second time there, this final prayer in verse 28. O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just, just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. His strength here in this prayer is clearly not his right. It's a gift from God. And he asks this God who's in relationship with him to remember him. This is not personal, I don't think. Revenge, this is God's judge asking God to be just and so to vindicate himself. It's in this place of weakness. It's in this place of shame. It's in this moment that's the epitome of failure that Samson ultimately finds his strength. His strength of humble dependence. That humble dependence which should have been present throughout his whole life, but now is found only now at the end of his life. And this is how it always is in the Christian life. The Apostle Paul says, when I am weak, I am strong. See, here's the definition of strength. The definition of strength is dependency. Because we lean on the one who is faithful, even when we are faithless. He is strengthened in his lowest and weakest moment. He's strengthened truly by God when he's come to the end of himself, when he's come to the end of his strength. And when he comes to that moment, God begins to work. That's why we read in Hebrews chapter 11 that it is weakness that's turned into strength. It's why we read in the letter of 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul speak of how God strengthens him 
in his weakness. For there was another great act of faithfulness in the face of death, an ultimate judge who was to come. His death was his greatest victory. Samson was in need of this ultimate judge, judge, but Samson was also a type, a shadow of this judge to come. He was like Samson in the fact that God didn't use an army to deliver this victory of the ultimate judge. He used just one man, one lonely man. But unlike Samson, this man was obedient from the very first moments of his life, right up until death, even death on a cross. He was faithful because where did he derive his strength from? Where was ultimate strength for this ultimate judge? It was in his dependence on his father, in his prayer to his father. And in those final moments, as he prays, as he is being killed, he could have called down the justice of God rightfully against those who were murdering him, but he doesn't. He depends on his father and he calls upon his father to forgive those who execute him. They don't know what they do. He's the one who delivers us from death. He's the one who delivers us from the blindness of our sin. With his arms stretched out, we see the power of God to rescue us from our sin, to rescue us from evil, all our evil. And so come, I invite you, come to him, not in your strength but in your weakness. Amen.